HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. Welcome back to another episode of the Western Rookie Podcast. This is your host, Brian Krebs speaking. And we are clearly on a theme of shed hunting. It's April. Uh, Western shed hunting is just starting to really ramp up. A lot of the shed closures across the West either open up May 1st, May 15th. But in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see a lot of shed closures lifted. People are finally going to get out. I know Utah's got a closure. Parts of Wyoming have a closure. Parts of Montana have a closure. And and so we've just been super excited about shed hunting. Uh, we just got back, if you're listening to this, we just got back from our shed trip to Arizona, New Mexico. But as I'm recording this, I'm recording ahead so you guys have episodes to listen to the weeks that were gone and so I'm right about to leave to go on that trip and I'm at my peak shed hunting excitement for everyone so look for some episodes to come out when we get back we'll be doing some updates on how the trip went and we will have posts that we're going to make on social media as well aside from that we have a great guest in the shed hunting theme, Sean Curtis. If you've seen him, he has a lot of contact or con, uh, content on social media. Um, and I've been following him for a while, seeing his TikToks and his reels. He's a huge shed hunter. He's from Wyoming. If you've ever seen shed hunting uh, content on YouTube and stuff, you know Wyoming's a great state for it. And so I'm super excited to pick Sean's brain about shed hunting, just hunting the West. He seems like he's a pretty cool, uh, pretty cool person doing a lot of really neat things in the outdoors. And hopefully we dive into some of those, some of those things like making your own freeze dried meals. I didn't even know that was possible, but I see Sean's been doing it for a little bit now. So going to be a great episode. I see Sean just popped into the lobby. So let's pull him in and kick this episode off. You're listening to The Western Rookie, a hunting podcast full of tips, tricks, and strategies from seasoned Western hunters. There are plenty of opportunities out there. We just need to learn how to take on the challenges. Hunting is completely different up there. I've harvested 26 big game animals. You can fool their eyes, but you can't fool their nose. 300 yards back to the road turned into three miles back the other way. It's always cool seeing new hunters go and harvest an animal. I don't know what to expect. If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you. All right, like I just said, Sean Curtis joined us for this episode of the Western Rookie Podcast. We were just briefly chatting here in the green room before kicking this off, and it sounds like Wyoming got dumped on again with snow. Like many of us in the Midwest have been struggling through Snow after snow after snow. It seems like shed season is never going to be here. Is that what you're starting to feel like? It feels like it, man. Um, thanks for having me, by the way. 
uh this is cool i love doing these but uh yeah wyoming man we've been hit hard and they're considered I mean, there's so many things on the table right now that are involving immediately shed season so um i feel bad for the non-residents that have made plans to come here for like the jackson may one the shed run the shed circus i call it but because uh, they're considering pushing that back or possibly canceling that May 1 opener. Um, no decisions have been made yet, but the valleys where these animals winter, um, all the migratory un ungulates, they, they, the valleys have gotten almost as much or more snow than some of the, some of the high country. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And it's from the south central part of the state all the way, all the way west. And there's a bunch of stuff up, up north that got slammed. I think Casper got like 26.7 inches in one day snowfall. So it's been wild, man. <laughs> wow. That's a lot of snow, and you yeah. know what? It sucks. No one likes it. Although, two good things that I see of coming out of this, I see a lot of people that we've had on the podcast but that I've just seen in general on social media are really banding together around the topic of herd health, right? right? Like, people are coming together and, like, understanding, like, this is a bad year across the entire West. Like, Utah in a tough way. Montana's in a tough way. Animals are struggling. And I've, I've really seen people, like, coming together and focusing on the health of the animals. And, I mean, I saw even a reel you posted where you're like, I'm just out getting some walking in, found a group of bulls. They're still packing. I'm just backing out. Like, I'm going to let them be. It's been a yep. rough year. Um, so that's one good thing I've seen out of it. The other good thing that I that I've seen out of it is um crap, where was I going with that? I thought I had two. Oh, yeah, hard winters. It is I have found you find more antlers on tough winters. As hard as it is for the animals, like it is a little bit easier to find sheds once spring finally gets here. And so I don't know if that's much of a saving grace, but that I have found a lot of my best years were on hard winter years. A hundred percent. These hard winters, they've kind of forced animals to congregate. The feed areas are a lot less abundant and available. So a lot of these animals hang out in those feed areas for a lot longer. And when you have winters like this, where the snow line just is so slow to recede, um, you know, they're not packed. They're hanging out in those low areas longer because the snow's there longer. So they're not really toting any of the extra antlers up the hill and scattering them all over the mid range to the summer range. You know, you, you kick one every now and then when you're archery hunting, but I don't think that's going to be a case this year. I think they're mostly going to be hanging out around the low elevation winter stuff. Yeah. And I, man, I wish I lived closer to the West. I'm in Minnesota and I archery hunt the West every year or right. I elk hunt every year for sure. Most of the time it's archery, but man, I wish I could get out there more in shed season. Cause it like, walking those mountains in the spring and I've done some like North Dakota badlands cause I had a badlands tag for elk once. And so I've done some mm -hmm. shed hunting out there and it's just like, it's, I love it. Like springtime in the mountains, like fall in the mountains, obviously that's magical, but I don't think people on like go out in the spring quite as much unless you're like doing spring bear or spring Turkey out West. Nobody like us flatlanders don't have any reason to be out in those mountains in the spring, but there's something about it. Like the walking's easier there's nothing in the way. It's finally warm. You're getting out and exploring nature. Like it, I, I wish I could get out there as much as some of you guys that I've talked to lately from the West doing the shed hunting thing. You guys get out so much and you're talking in the green room about like the goal for this year for you was like 250 sheds. And I'm just thinking like, man, 250 whitetail sheds would be a great year to think 250 elk and mule deer sheds. That would be phenomenal. It, it should be good. It's kind of a high goal. It'll be one of my best years if that's the way it happens. But the way 
the again like the elk and the mule deer congregating sorry i got a crazy little puppy here but somehow um the way the elk and the mule deer are congregating and I, we've had some eyes on them and right now we're, we're we've completely stuck like you talked about you know banding together to keep the pressure off the wildlife we've completely stuck to glassing from the roads like a lot of people have um and when they're that easy to find in large groups from the roads i mean it really leaves your op your optimism open because we're not seeing a whole lot of people out glassing the spots that we go which is great um so we kind of have the animals located and you know that's a it is a high goal but it's i think it's an attainable goal we'll see what happens but yeah um i hope you get the chance to come out more often man um things are changing in wyoming like in a lot of the western states the shed hunting becomes a lot more a lot more popular um there's a lot more regulation surrounding it and it's rightfully so um like anything that becomes that popular in the outdoors um but hb0123 uh is our new shed regulatory measures that we're putting in place and it you know it favors non or favor, favors residents um with a seven-day head start to the may one stuff so the guys that aren't going to be able to do the may one this year because of all the stuff going on i feel bad for them because next year they're going to be subject to that you know starting seven days behind all of us but with that being said there's still so much opportunity to come out here and it's just a week. You know what I mean? There's not that many people in Wyoming. So luckily you don't have to fight with that many residents and you should still be able to come out here and do pretty well. So two, I have, I have a few questions on this whole thing. Sure. Only parts of Wyoming have the May one opener, right? And then other parts of it, there really is no closure except for like extreme weather years. Correct. So um, the great divide is usually the dividing line. So it, it runs up just right through Laramie cuts up 287 and kind of does a loop around 80 and runs um, west and then it curves up at the great divide. So the whole lower Southwest, maybe slightly more than a third of the state is subject to that May one rule as of right now. Okay. But with that new regulation that they're putting in, um, it goes into effect July 1st. So next year, everything West of I-25 between Colorado and Buffalo, Wyoming will be May 1, and then everything from Buffalo to Montana west of I-90 will be May 1. So there'll be a, it, it'll be more than three-quarters of the state that'll have be, have that May 1 subjection. Okay. So just for people to know, because I had some buddies that were heading out to Wyoming, and I was like, dude, you might want to check, because I'm pretty sure parts of Wyoming have a closure. And they're like, I don't know, the guy we were going to go with said it's all good, and then you got dumped on, so it fell apart anyway. Um, so I right. wanted to check that. But also, I mean – Wyoming, I feel like, is a beautiful sleeper state for a couple reasons. One, it, it, for whatever, it, it seems like there's something in the water in Utah where, like, shed hunting, elk, the culture, the creators, business, like, it's just going bonkers in Utah. So there's a lot of people yeah. doing full-time, like, elk shed hunting and elk pages in Utah. I feel like Wyoming, you know, maybe you tell me I'm wrong, just doesn't quite have that full as that population of full-time hunters. Now these guys from obviously Utah bounce around, they hit these other States. But when we start talking about like a rule, like I can't rattle off the number, but the seven day delay for non-residents, right? For mm -hmm. most people, that's like a two day delay, right? Your average resident's going to shed hunt maybe Friday afternoon, Saturday, Sunday afternoon, and then they have to go back to their life. Right. So are you really giving up that much? No. Am I, as a non-resident coming from Minnesota, throwing a dart at the map if I don't have connections or contacts or buddies and just going out, am I going to compete with a resident anyway? No. 
Like I, you're going to have your spots no. already. You're going to glass. You're going to have a plan. I'm just going to be throwing a dart at the map, having fun being out in nature. First couple of years, I'll probably build on it, but that's a big state. Like there's a big state for a handful of people that are going to hit it hard for seven straight days opening week. Probably not going to impact my hunt whatsoever. No, and that's what I've been trying to tell people. I've been trying to like offer, you know, some words of encouragement. Like, yeah, don't completely uproot your, you know, plans and like flood one other state. Just, I mean, if you're going to come here, come here, do do your thing. Um, we love, I love having non-residents. I, I'm, I've never been big on gatekeeping or anything like that because we have a lot of public land. I mean, I've been doing this for a lot of years and I still don't run into that many people, even though that many more people are doing it because of the creators and stuff like that that you mentioned. And um, I don't consider myself a creator, but yeah, like you were talking about Wyoming, we have a lot of people. I mean, almost everyone here is an outdoorsman or outdoors woman. But um, as far as like full time, there's a lot of people that do it full time, but they don't. It's not as much of a career on the social media side of it as it is on the other side of it. As far as it's just more of a sustainability thing for us. Yeah. Um, my platform is just built on sharing it and, you know, kind of hoping to just be a part of a voice of conservation stewards i guess across the across the gamut because there's a lot of people that you know are, are that look down on hunting in our way of life so it's just that's most of what i put out as far as content and the funny stuff too so yeah the funny stuff is hilarious i was just watching some of your stuff um and i find shed hunting is just a great opportunity to be funny like i don't know what it is i am the worst at actually filming hunts in the fall I, I get out there, I drop my phone for a week, and I don't even pick it up. But shed hunting, like, I got into this kind of groove of, like, making all kinds of funny posts, pretending to complain I can't find a thing, and then walk right by a hammer, whitetail shed, and, and then people are, like, commenting, and it's going viral. It's just, like, it's easy to play with it, like, be fun. Because it's, like, low stress. Like, you find a shed, it's not going anywhere. Like, you can spend an hour dinking around it's still going to be there versus like when a whitetail comes into my food plot or an elk is at 40 yards bugle and there's no time to be dinking around with social media (laughs) so no that's that's correct man um and there's a lot of fun in the in what we do too as far as hunting shed hunting there's it's there's there's a big side of it which is the lighter side of it that i don't think really gets focused on right because everybody and this is not a shot at anybody but everybody's trying to you know have that or that posture on social media that like i'm a badass at what i do and that's cool because there's a lot of badasses out there but i like to you know share that side of it where you know i'm out getting it done um, and i've got meat on my pack and i'm you know the pack out's four miles what what have you and the work that goes into it but i also like to focus on the fact that we're out there having fun you know it's we don't go out there just to i mean have a suck fest and then go back to your suck fest at work yeah um it's fun and there's a lot of funny stuff that happens on the mountain and when you're hunting that you don't think about right then, but then you think about it when you're playing the hunt back over at home and it turns into some pretty funny content for people. And it seems like that people enjoy it because we can all relate. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I would say shed hunting is like type one fun of Western hunting, like maybe antelope, mm-hmm. like it's more type one. You wake up whenever, go out, have fun. Not that hard. You're just enjoying life versus elk hunting. Yeah is typically type two fun. Like it typically sucks while you're doing it. And you got glimpses of highs and lows, but it's, it's a roller coaster for sure. And brutal, like uncomfortable. Like we tell people, like if you're going to, if you think you want to go elk hunting, just prepared to be uncomfortable for nine days. 
Yep. Yep. 90, 90% awful, 10% awesome, but the 10% supersedes the 90% every time. All yeah. The time. You'll be uncomfortable for nine days. You'll probably question why you're doing this a few times. And as <laughs> soon as you like get in the truck to head home, you're thinking about next year. Yep. So always. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's why I just love shed hunting. It's just a chance to get out. And all I've done so far is whitetail. I've tried a little bit of mule deer in South Dakota. I've got like a couple of, I think that's a three by three set, a couple other fork, big fork stuff. I've never found a four by four. Um, unfortunately I had my chance in Wyoming guiding my nephew on his first mule deer hunt and shot a mule deer. Well, it was the last day. Weather's brutal. And we had three antelope tags. My dad and my both nephews had an antelope tag. And then we had three mule deer tag. I had a mule deer, and then both nephews had a mule deer as well. And my brother was full-time guide. And so everyone has shot everything except my nephew has down to the last tag. It's a mule deer tag. And so I take him out. We're driving around. He has no bar whatsoever. His brother shot a fork, so he's like, as long as it's as big as my brother's, I'm cool. And so we see this forky. <laughs> weather's turning south real fast. I'm like, you want to go after that one? He's like, yep, let's go. So I park the truck, go around, do the whole thing. He shoots. Wasn't the greatest shot. He's also 13 on his first mule deer of his life. And so I'm like, all right, mule deer's going down this drainage. Drainage go curves to the right or the left. And so I think if we can like get up, cut him off, maybe we can catch him in his bed or something and finish him off. And so I'm looking how to get out of this cut. And I'm looking up, and it's steep, and I'm like, I think we can make it here. I take one step up onto, like, the bank, and my nephew reaches down and goes, hey, look, you stepped on a shed, and pulls up a four-point brown mule deer shed. <laughs> That's how it works. Yeah. I'm That's like, how it works. I'm just like, you got to be shitting me. <laughs> I, hate, I hate to think how many we actually walk by. Like, every time I'm out there, I'm always like, you know, even the days you get skunked, you're like, well, you can, you can take some solace in the fact that, like, I know I walk by sheds. I know I did. So you can take solace in that on a, on a day you get skunked. And, but I hate to think about it almost brings, it makes me sick almost to think about how many I've actually walked by just by some of the ones that I found by like, you know, taking that last extra look through the sage. I'm like, Oh, there's, there's, that's not snow. That's, that's, that's a burr or that's a, that's a base right there. And you're like, if I didn't just look over at the right time, I would have walked right by it. And you don't, you think of how many times you didn't look over at the right time and have walked right by antlers. And it's probably a lot. <laughs> yeah. I remember, I tried to remind myself that while we're missing antlers, at least it's like, at least we're probably finding the big ones because those are easier to spot. Right. And so I just remind myself, like, at least we're finding the big ones or like, at least the big ones are easier. You're probably not walking by those as bad or as many times. Right. Um, but yeah, I do want to get out West more and more. It's it's vacation time as well. Like I have a day job. I only have so much time. I love spending a week in the boat in Canada every year. I love spending nine days archery elk hunting. So you just got to sneak in those trips. And I think I'm just going to try more and more to like make those long drive three day weekend type trips to like Eastern Wyoming, Western South Dakota, just Eastern Montana, just make the most of it. Right. You know, it doesn't have to be like a week long shed trip. Sure. So. Yeah, and you know, like you can vary. I don't know. You can do like a kind of a state hopping thing too, which is kind of fun. Um, helps you learn some of the terrain. But if you're if you mainly hunt uh, a certain state, it's kind of good to shed hunt that state, especially as a non-resident, just to get your boots into the areas that you're going to be that fall or maybe one year or a year that you're hoping to hunt, and just kind of get an eye on the terrain because Onyx maps and Go Hunt 
terrain analysis and Google Earth, all the tools that are available now are, are phenomenal, but they still don't give a grand tour or as good of a tour of the land as putting boots on it and looking at exactly how those topo lines translate into what that ridge or that drainage system actually looks like and what kind of what kind of feed or bedding potential it actually holds. So shed hunting is another thing that you know helps people get a little scouting in. You're not necessarily shed hunting the area you're going to be hunting 100%, but at least it gets you in the area that you can take a look at and hopefully you know get an edge on on a hunt because non-residents spend a lot of money to come out and elk hunt. So any edge or advantage you can get. Um, is I, I think worth the trip it alone in itself. And if you can, if you're lucky enough to pick up a few sheds, then I mean, that's all the better. Yeah. 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 One, 100%. I mean, typically I'm looking yeah. at these topo maps being like, that doesn't look that bad. Looks doable. And then you get out there and you're like, shit, that looks steep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And no um, picture will ever do it justice either. So it's no, like it's so a hard to take a picture to justify like how steep it really is. Um, it is. But, but it looks like you have gotten out a little bit. You said you found a few already this season. Is that private land? Is it public land? What, how is the, what's the breakdown for you? Um, I shed hunt all public. Um, I found I found sixteen this year, and or sixteen elk sheds and four deer sheds. Uh, one decent deer shed um, and a couple of really nice browns. And I found a few with my buddies that. Uh, we've spotted so if, if you count like us as a group we found we've probably found 40 or 50 already but those are in areas um outside of the areas that are uh are may one of course and they're outside of the areas that have seen the the worst part of the winter quit outside of the areas that have seen the worst part of the winter um get down gotta take a break here i'm gonna get this dog in the kennel real quick yeah no worries is that right could you do that real quick yep. come on guys. um what were we saying oh yeah so yeah, we've been out. We've been lucky to I've put on about 100 miles already on um, some of the easier terrain. The snow on the eastern side of where it would it wouldn't be May 1 even after the new rule um, comes through. So that's where we've been spending most of our time. We're watching in the other areas, but we're only hiking the areas that we can get to easily. And then we know we're not putting pressure on these herds. So we're, we've been really careful about it, just knowing the kind of winter that it's been. And we've, as of recent, I've I'm not going out anywhere for another two or three weeks. I'm just going to let it marinate. The antlers will still be there. Um, I can wait just fine. And I think we'll still do just fine. As long as I still have an idea where the bulls are and the deer are, which we do. So we're just going to kind of marinate, let these, give, give these herds a break and then go back in there at the end of April near, near to closer to the May one time frame, And that's just based on the weather that we're seeing next couple of weeks with like fifties, sixties and seventies. So, should be good. We start. We should start seeing a turnaround, and we're probably going to see some flooding. I'm sure Utah is going to get hammered with floods, but Wyoming, we might be okay. Out west, it's going to be rough, though. Yeah, yeah, I think for sure Utah. I don't see how Utah's not going to flood. We had Ryan Carter on yeah. the podcast a couple weeks ago, and he said, "Yeah, some of our ski resorts are reporting over 600 feet of snow." Or no, yeah. 600 inches. It's sorry, pretty... not 600 feet. 600 uh, yeah, inches. Yeah, I, I, I picked up where you were going. <laughs> but it's still like 600 inches is like 50 feet of snow. So, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. It's like 220 percent snowpack. Yeah. Well, they need the water. Uh, I don't think they need it all at once, but they need the water. And so it is a wild year. It is. It's kind of a wild year for shed hunting in a lot of different ways between closures and. And all that, and and the closures got me thinking. Like everyone's everyone's worried about 
someone else finding an antler, right? Which is, yeah. I get it. I understand it to a degree. But for a guy like myself, like, I don't know, there's other antlers. Like, you can just work harder, walk farther, go to new spots. And so what's, like, your stance on, like, how often do you feel like one of your spots you go to and it's like, man, I don't know what's up. I think someone beat me here. I'm, I mean, I can say this with 100% honesty. I am never worried about it. I don't tell people my spots, you know, because nobody does that. But I'm not worried about somebody doing their research and figuring out that it's a good area. Um, and they go, I've, I found antlers right off, of, right off of boot tracks. It's not, you can't find them all. Um, like we talked about, people walk, I mean, we walk by them. Other people are going to walk by them too. You just might pick the right line. Shed hunting is all about doing the research pre-antler fall off if you can get in there without pressuring the herds. And it's about picking the right lines. It's like, I think it's 80% or like probably 40% research and 60% luck, if not more heavily weighted toward luck. Um, yeah. Pick, pick As soon as you get off where you've been glassing the animals, it's just picking the right line because it's a, it's a guessing game and you're just using all of your knowledge and trying to figure out where an elk would be when an elk should be feeding in the winter. That's really all you can go on. Um, I, I, I always, I think, I guess my, my outlook on it is I'm never going to, and that goes with hunting too, which is why I don't mind non-residents doing anything in our mountains. Um, I'm never not going to fill my tag because someone else did. And the same thing goes with antlers. I'm never going to not pick up antlers because someone else picked up a few. So yeah, more, more, more people in the mountains advocating for it. And advocating for a wildlife, I think, is the bigger benefit than me not finding a couple sheds because somebody else did. Yeah, that's the that's kind of what I'm getting at. It's like, for one, like the shed closure rules. It's like I don't know, I don't really care as long as everyone plays by the rules. That's fine with me. I know some people are gonna cheat, go in at night, do whatever. The right. but like it's just I hate when people are like worried so much that someone else is gonna find your antler that they are out there pushing animals and going way too early. And that part just bothers me um, because it's like, I don't, I don't see the need to be that gung ho. Like I don't see the need to be that desperate to find that like spot. And I mean, obviously everything goes out the window for 400 inch bulls. People are just going to go nuts for those, no matter what you try to tell them. But in general, it's like, I don't, I don't know. Like there's plenty of antlers out there. Like how many antlers I'd love to know, like in Wyoming, how many antlers drop a year and how many of them are picked up? Cause I bet it's like 15%. I, I know. I mean, I pick up a lot of whites every year, so I know that, and I'll pick up a lot of chalk too. So I know that a lot of them are left laying there. So if, if you're picking up whites and chalks, that should be a pretty good determination of the fact that there's going to be whites and chalks the following year too, because it's, there's too much public ground. We think, we, I, I think we have, and I have to check me on this, like eight, plus million acres. I think it's way more than that. Actually. I think maybe 13 or 14 million acres of public ground out here. And a lot of it, I mean, there's a lot of it that's landlocked and stuff like that, but even the accessible stuff, you can get in there so far and never see a soul because there's a lot of people who's going to put in the work and who won't. Um, there's so many antlers that don't get picked up. And that's another one of those, you look at the herds and you're like, start doing the math in your head and you're just, it's really easy to, to get discouraged if you're not picking stuff up because you're, you're just like, there's so many animals in Wyoming. I should be picking up antlers every step I take, but you miss them. Yeah. Yeah. So that part doesn't really bother me nearly as much. Like I, I've even started dabbling with the idea of, of like a, not a tag, but a stamp. 
like a $30 shed stamp per state um, just to go out and, and just as like a venue or an avenue to get money back into hopefully like ideally 100% back to winter range improvement. I don't know yep. what that means, but it's like this stamp, like the federal dunk stamp, 98% of it has to go back to access, improvement, and protection of wetlands. Like the same thing for this. It'd be like 100% of it has to go back to winter range improvement, protect, protecting these migration corridors, uh, protecting the winter range, all kinds of stuff. Like I'd, I'd probably support something like that. I don't want a limit. Like I don't want a bag limit on my sheds. I don't want a $800 right. tag to come as a non-resident, but I'm not opposed to kicking back a little bit either. Cause you know, we love it so much. The only way to protect it is to, you know, pay for it. Well, so one of the things that this, that HB 0123 does is that it, it kind of does that um, in the regard or in, in the way of having non-residents buy a conservation stamp, which is $21 and 50 cents. So if you come here to Shed Hunt next year, you have to buy a conservation stamp, which is 21 bucks, 21 and a half bucks. So it's kind of along the lines of what you're talking about. Our conservation stamps do go directly to our state funded conservation. Um, so that is, you know, one of the things that they've included in this bill. So they are moving that direction. And I'm, I'm pretty sure other states will follow suit um, because it's a pretty cheap means of having to come here and, and do something you love to do. It's kicking back to the state that you love to do it in. It's inviting you in and, Sure, you have to wait seven days, you know, post residence. But the really the only thing that affects, I think, is Jackson and May one. I don't like we talked about. It, I don't think it's going to affect anything else. Wait, so yeah, yeah, we are we are making moves like that, and I think some of it will also go to the migration initiative, which is something that Wyoming has kind of kickstarted, and other states have kind of followed suit in as well. Um, we've us in Utah and Arizona have worked together really, really well to put in the. Uh, a lot of the overpasses and the kickouts that are in the taller fence lines in the one in, in the winter ranges to and it's it's I think it's significantly decreased it to the tune of like 90 plus percent of vehicle start or vehicle strikes on mule deer elk and other animals um, this year is definitely different because these animals aren't in their typical winter ranges they've had to venture much further um, to get sustenance but in a typical year um, those initiatives have have absolutely killed it on their, on their, um, on their goals and on their ambitions. And I think this will help that. Yeah. Well, imagine, imagine how bad it would have been if for the last two decades, Wyoming hasn't been doing anything for the migration initiative. And then we get a winner like this. Like, yeah. Pfft, it would, goodbye. It would have been statewide. Absolutely devastating. Yeah. Well, it's already going to be statewide devastating. I mean, it's just a bad year. Right. Like, I, antelope. How does an antelope survive a 21 inch snowfall? I, I don't know. It's tough. I actually got off the phone with um, Phil. He's uh, one of the wildlife biologists that I know down in the Bags region, which is the region we were talking about before the show, um, down in the High Sierras. And the high, the high Sierras are usually, you put chains on, you can uh, bust a couple drifts and, and get back in there, but there's no chance. You won't, people won't be getting there until June this year. And a lot of those antelope that were lucky have gotten out of that area, moved south kind of into Colorado over the drifts that had the fences maybe about that big or not visible at all. And the concern there is that it's good for the animal. The antelope got to a place where they could feed and thrive, but when they try to come back, uh, they won't be able to navigate the, the fence work. So it's going to be a, not only are we having winter kill down there, now we're losing animals to other, um, other more obtainable feed out of state, which is fine for the animal. 
because that's what we're concerned about. But you know, it's going to affect our numbers too, and tag allocations will will follow that effect. So uh, it's man, it's there's so many facets to what's going on with this winter, and I I can't even get a grasp on it. I'm trying like hell, but it's it's going to be tough. Yeah. Yeah, I really want to follow along and, and see what happens. Like our tag allocations, are they going to be active and proactive enough to adjust them now, even though like a lot, like Wyoming's non-resident draw was January 31st. And a lot of these states are, draws are closing up or the application is closing. The draws are happening as we speak. Are they going to be like, hey, like we can't do a, a normal hunt on top of this winter, like we don't have time to do it the right way with science and, and fall surveys and like how we usually do it, but we need to make some changes. I wonder if we're going to see that already this year. I think, um, I think we will. So we had an emergency meeting in Rollins. Um, it was actually initiated by the Wyoming game and fish and governor Gordon. And I was going to try to attend that virtually because the roads were closed, of course, in Wyoming on 80. Um, but it was full already. That was, it had a 500 person max. So, I called the Green River office to see what the results of that were. And they put literally everything on the table. There were no decisions made, but everything's on the table as far as full cancellation and pulling an emergency rule um, down the road. But what, one of the good, good things I think that Wyoming is doing is that our commission meeting that's supposed to happen this month, they may even delay the commission meeting so that they can have more viable um, documentation of what's actually going on with real numbers so that they can bring that to the commission meeting and make the decisions there. So our tag allocation numbers might be a little bit delayed in coming out, um, or they might not, just depends. But you know what they say, winter winter weekends and uh, spring kills. So we've got another two months of mortality left. So we have to kind of, we have to kind of feel, put our feet in it slowly to see what we're gonna do. Because if you make an allocation now and it's way worse, um, or ends up becoming worse, you know, you, your emergency rule is gonna make a lot of people mad the state's going to have to refund a lot of money if they're, if they, if they, you know, it just creates a whole mess, yeah. a whole cesspool of things that we don't have to be, we don't want to deal with. Yeah. That is, it, that's just rough. No one wants to, no one wants to think about it and no one wants to see that, but it's something that probably just has to happen to protect the animals yeah. in the long term. Um, which, oh, well, I mean, there's other opportunity around, like there'll be, you, there'll be plenty of chances to get out and hunt this fall, but, um, Oh yeah, it's just kind of weird. It's kind of wild to to see it all happening kind of all at once in a way. With the like Western legislation, the last couple of years has been wild, <laughs> especially yeah, from a been. flatlander's point of view. And then we have a, a winter like this where it's like wild. And so now now it's really wondering like, okay, where are we gonna like? What's the future of elk hunting look like for a non-resident? Or what's the future of antelope? Like antelope and mule deer already weren't in that great of place in the West. And I don't think this year it's going to improve any, any substantial amount. Um, especially the antelope in Wyoming. Like it's, it's already kind of been pulling back with all the opportunity. And now you get a winner like this, like those antelope are not built like an elk. No, no, we've had, 2017, the winter of 2017 really, really hurt the mule deer population and the pronghorn population. And then you have a historical winter like this with mortality rates in the south central part of Wyoming. I mean, we're looking at 70 to 80 percent mule deer mortality rate. Um, they've had 33 uh, mature doe pronghorn collared. And of those 33, as of like a couple weeks ago, I think it was 14 or 15 had been declared dead already. Um, that was before this last storm hit. So 
and they're looking at about 100% fall mortality rate. So we are not going to have a, a herd turnover in those units and down over in the Star Valley where they're getting all the snow in the winter ranges are probably going to be looking at numbers similar to that. Um, it's hard to tell, obviously, because like I said, there are two more months or so of mortality left. But uh, the good thing and the out good outlook on elk, uh, especially for our state, is that almost every unit is over objective um, to the tune of thousands. So elk are flourishing and thriving. So whatever we lose um, in this winter, I'm not saying it's like, oh, it's fine, but um, we can sustain that a little bit more and the herds will still remain hardy. Um, so I don't think elk, the elk hunting for us or for non-residents as far as tag allocation is going to change at all outside of the, um, the 90-10 rule that they're imposing, of course. But um, I think elk hunting in Wyoming is going to be pretty, pretty good for a lot of years to come. Mule deer and antelope, I, I don't see it being great for years to come. And if we get another winter, it's just probably going to go away. Yeah, hopefully Hopefully they bounce back eventually. Hopefully we get some good rain summers and green grass for a couple of years and really bounce these numbers back up. Elk are just they're yeah. tanks. Like they're just little tanks that I mean they're built for this. Like the twenty inches of snow, that alone doesn't bother them one bit. They walk around yeah. in that all day long. They might not enjoy finding food in it, but they're built for it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I mean they and they can they have a such a wide a wide range of things that they can live on in the winter time from browse to sage i mean mule deer rely on sage when the sage is covered that's what gets detrimental i mean mule or pronghorn are, they're just not big enough animals to where they can paw through some of this crusted snow and use their heads and their body weight to move snow around to get down to the available feed they just can't do it they're not built for it so yeah they're just not hardy enough to survive the the stuff that elk are able to and the stuff that they can get to that elk have already gotten to it or are in it right now because they got there first because they're, they're able. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it sucks to see one species flourish and one just really struggle, but it, that is nature. But I mean, all we can do is all we can do is what we can do. Right. And that's, yeah. there's not a lot. I know in the past, I, I just not to dwell on the doom and gloom of winter, but I know in the past Wyoming has done supplemental feeding on the winter ranges, and then recently it, it that was pulled back. And um, has there been any update like this year? Like people are saying, nah, I think we got to put it back in place now. So all the feed grounds, um, as far as I know, are open, especially on the western the side of the state with the more critical winter ranges. All those feed grounds are open. Um, they're all operable, like the eastern Idaho ones and the western Wyoming ones, um, the big ones. Uh, the refuges are all are all still uh, they're all still feeding. The thing is with mule deer, they're you they're not a great herd to feed because their diets are so specific. You can feed them. I mean, they're not they don't do well on hay. Um, and from what I understand, if they're not getting the the browse and the stuff that they usually need, they can their stomachs can do something weird, and they can. I mean, it, it's more detrimental than mm. having them try to forage and find what they need so the mule deer feed isn't um isn't huge or really existent here um people are doing it out of their out of their own hearts and stuff like that and i hope it's helping um but the elk yeah they'll they'll be on the feed grounds and the bad thing about that though is the feed grounds some of the feed grounds are covered completely and the elk are moving into uh you know ranchers um establishments and they're starting to co-mingle with cattle so you know a whole other facet of disease you're looking at possibilities for that too but um, on the front of disease, when you're looking at CWD and how that's affected mule deer herds, one of the maybe bright lights of this whole winter is that hopefully the weaker CWD-ridden mule deer um, and or elk are 
eliminated. And I, I know that sounds cold hearted, yeah, but eliminated from the gene pool. And hopefully we'll get a bounce back, even though this hurt us, we'll get a bounce back in the CWD department from the weaker animals getting unselected, I guess, by natural selection. Yeah. Yeah. And then just not spreading it. Right. Because while it's endemic and it's going to stay in the environment, the I, it's widely believed and no one really knows yet, but it's widely believed that the, the most common pathway is like animal to animal contact, like live animal to live animal right. to licking each other, everything like that. And so if that animal dies, it can't do that anymore. So we lost one. It's like, would you rather lose one or five? I'd rather right. lose one. <laughs> um, yep. So yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so kind of transferring back into something more positive and exciting yeah. to talk about. The elk are on the winter ranges. Everyone knows the famous Jackson Hole winter range. Um, wild shed hunt. Do you think that they will make special rules for Jackson with the whole non-resident delay? I don't. There's nothing in the literature. I've read the whole bill. Um, there's nothing in the literature about uh, – kind of make it an exception um honestly the bill was brought forth by a big group of residents too um with the wildlife task force and wildlife game or the wyoming game and fish um it's i used to go back in the day and it was before you know it was all cool and popular and stuff like that and it was fun um it was busy then but man i now i i've stopped going in like 2014 or something. i can't remember but i haven't gone in i mean a decade or more and even then it was our, it was non-resident outnumbered vehicle or resident vehicles, 10 plus to one easily. It's great for the city of Jackson as far as revenue and stuff like that, but it just became a thing I didn't want to be a part of. And a lot of residents follow the same sentiment. It just, it kind of eliminated the reason I do it um, in the first place. Cause I don't want to race somebody for a shed. It loses all its allure when people get that crazy over an elk shed. And um, I mean, there's a guy that threatened a lady with a hatchet a few years back. I heard and it's just, I want no part of that. So I don't That's, know what it's going to be like. Oh, I may start going again. That yeah, is a yeah, bold is. move in a state like Wyoming to bring a hatchet to what's probably going to be a gunfight. <laughs> <laughs> That's yes. Well put. Yeah. So I don't, I don't, yeah, it's not, not something I want to be a part of, but I don't think, yeah, there's nothing in the literature that's going to give any kind of special exception, um, to that. Um, that shed run. So it'll be mostly residents there. I mean, it'll be all residents there. So that's kind of what I was leaning into is, is how crazy it is. And so when you were doing it, because it's only recently been changed that it's a daytime thing. When you were doing it, it was like midnight. You start at midnight no. and you're going out yeah. in the dark, which to me sounds wild, like <laughs> running out in the dark, trying to not trip on anything, trying to find an antler with your spotlight. Horses are going by you. Um, now it's in the daylight, which probably makes it a little safer, but a little bit like more crazy because everyone's moving that much faster. Um, yeah. But I was going to ask you, like, what's your take on the whole Jackson? Like, is it worth it? I've always – I've known of it for probably a decade as well and never had a desire to partake because I always thought, like, I don't know anything. I've never been there. Don't know where to go. And there's a – what thousands of people that have been doing it their entire life that know exactly where to go. Yeah. They probably all have horses. Like what am I going to find that, you know, that's probably one where I will let other people affect my hunt. <laughs> yeah, that's well, and I, likewise, I don't go anymore because of that. Um, there's only really two ways in uh, to that whole area where people go crazy. And last year, I think was the first year they introduced uh, 
you had to go online like at a certain time and get a vehicle or a number for your vehicle. You could only have like five or six people in your vehicle. Um, and you, you can go out there and do it. And it's an experience, I'm sure, for someone that's looking for that kind of an experience. But you're probably, if you're going on foot without horses and without knowledge, you're probably only going to find three or four, five sheds a piece, which is a great day for any day. But um, you got to look at the cost that you're putting into going out and doing that. And if you're just going out to do it for the experience, that's awesome. More power to you. And, you, you know, you might have fun doing it. But um, the reasons I do it aren't to be near more people. They're to be further away from people. So <laughs> yeah. that's kind of the turnoff for me. I would love to go to Jackson for that event and not shed hunt at all. Like I'm not even shed hunting. I'm just in Jackson being a part of the culture, talking to people, hanging out, looking at people's sheds as they bring them back and just, just ex- observing. I don't want any part in the race. Maybe eventually I'd get into it, but like you said, it's, it's wild, but it's always, I've always thought about, so the boy scouts go in first and they scoop up all the easy ones. Right. Like on the, the refuge. Yep. Yeah. So on the winter range, right. They're like the winter refuge mm-hmm. and then the, the elk, the Jackson Hole shed hunt is like up in the hills, whatever dropped yep, back it's up there. Off the refuge. Yep, it's up in the national forest, up off the refuge. Yep. So they're never going to change the whole Boy Scout thing, I'm sure. But no, was, I've that'll always be, that'll be forever. I've always thought about what would happen if you auctioned off like a hundred Jackson Hole shed passes. Yeah. I'm sure that they would go in a matter of, like they'd go faster than a Garth Brooks, a Garth Brooks ticket. <laughs> yeah, but mean? not not like a ticket sale, an auction. So oh yeah, you got no, there's I we're gonna that. like at the Western Hunt Expo we're gonna do ten, and at Bozeman RMEF we're gonna do five, and Jackson Hole RMEF we're gonna do twenty, and, and you're just auctioning them off straight auction. It all goes just like Utah's tag auctions, because you're gonna probably I don't know how many people go like just. Throw out a number that you would expect. Like, are we talking a thousand or ten thousand? How many people go like right now as of last year? Yeah, probably closer to ten thousand. Okay, so maybe a hundred, maybe fifty. The point is, like, make it exclusive enough that you're making a lot of money on each one. Because if you did two thousand tags, people are probably only gonna spend like a hundred bucks or less. But if you did a hundred, people right. are like, like to be one out of a hundred or one out of twenty to get to Chad Hunt Jackson. Like, you get the whole week. You get seven days. The 20 of you got it to yourselves. Try not to kill each other. After that, we're opening it up to the public. You know, after the Boy Scouts, but before the public, you'd probably have people spend 50 grand on that pass. You would. And then you'd have people, I don't know, I feel like you'd have a a price on your own head. (laughs) If you got that kind of privilege, that would be something. Yeah, I don't know how they would orchestrate something like that, but I think it would be huge money. I mean, huge money. Yeah, to to I don't know. People would be so angry, but I'm always oh, yeah. I'm looking at it maybe more of a business side, and I have my, a different podcast I run as an outdoor entrepreneurship side. So I'm always kind of looking at like how do we get better hunting, make money, blah blah blah. And I'm like, man, if you could auction off twenty passes for fifty grand a piece, that's a million dollars that you're putting into winter range in Wyoming. Like the yeah. those conservation stamps aren't going to do it. Like they ain't gonna right. raise a million dollars in shed hunting conservation stamps. So, is it worth pissing off the other nine thousand eight hundred people? <laughs> Man, I don't know. I don't want to see antlers turn to like crime. <laughs> I feel 
I feel like there would be some pretty shady stuff that goes on, even more so shady than, you know, some of the people that go in and, you know, the guys that don't adhere to any of the regulation already. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't would, I, I, a hundred percent, it would, it would garner millions of dollars for the right, for the right funnels. But the, I don't know how the orchestration of that would happen without significantly pissing off a lot of people. It would, you'd have to get everyone on board with like, we need the money that bad. And you're not gonna like well you're not asking that's the tough part like you're sacrificing the four antlers like you talked about that you're probably gonna find for a million dollars to the wildlife like i would give up those four antlers likewise yeah i think a lot of people would but i think the majority of and again it goes back to the popularity of the of the activity these days Uh, people are shed crazy you know they're they're it's i've never i never thought that going out and doing something i used to get made fun of for doing would be like i wish more people still made fun of us for it it's like oh it's just nature's participation trophy and i'm like you need to convince everyone that (laughs) yeah but then you know you have your participation trophies in a freezer full of elk too it's like well now what do you say yeah (laughs) no i hear you man i hear you for sure and so aside from jackson i've always thought as jackson is a great opportunity to shut hunt everywhere else in wyoming that weekend Because all yeah. the serious people are in Jackson, um, except for Sean. Yeah. Me and Sean will be off by ourselves finding antlers. Yeah, we'll go find some somewhere else. <laughs> so for a flatlander, and it doesn't even have to be Wyoming specific, but flatlander just wants sure. to go out west, dabble with shed hunting, mostly like someone that's going for a good authentic reason. We just want to get out west, be outside, have some fun. If we find some antlers along the way, that'd be amazing. I, you know, I kind of hope we find some because we're going all the way, but not. we're not looking to do like, you know, 160 elk sheds in a three-day weekend type of thing. Like, right. we just want to have fun. We've never been there before. You take a map. How do you pick where to go? Would you look at, like, the winter range overlays on all these services and kind of pair that up with a snow depth map and kind of be like, eh, find some public land where the where the whatever, was what it, Gantt chart overlaps or the the whatever that – I don't know why I can't think of it. I'm an engineer. I should know these things. But the chart, the two circles overlap. That's where you go. Yeah. You, well, there's those are tried and true methods. I mean, the runner there's so there's so few of those critical grounds that are are designated by wildlife for, or the forest service and wildlife fisheries um, that they're pretty easy to determine what range those animals are coming from that utilize those grounds. So yeah, I'm going to identify those winter grounds and then I'm going to look at like the, the foothills um, with the snow line on normal years. This year I'm looking at the winter grounds, all of them. Um, but on normal years, I'm looking at like the winter grounds and then the range they come from. And I'm going to try to find some of the hills and travel corridors that they're going to use to follow the snow line back up that have all the available south facing slopes and uh, shelter belts that they can use to get back up there. Um, and what's going to have that feed available at the, at the earliest convenience for them to follow that snow line back up to their spring or their late spring and summer ranges. So, okay. So you're saying those, the, you know, tried and true. the shed range isn't necessarily the winter range you're talking on a normal year. It's probably more like your transition range. Yeah. And I think it's just short of the transition range. Um, because the winter ranges that when they start the snow normally starts receding, the animals follow it. Right. So the feed on the winter range is gone. There's no reason for them to be there when they're really starting to drop and they'll follow that snow. So yeah, you, the snow and the, the mountain range that they 
that you think that herd will be coming from going back to is what I would use as my measures to see where I'm going to hit. And typically those antlers and those animals are toting those, those antlers a little bit back up with the feed. So you're probably going to be, I'm probably going to be looking as an out-of-stater coming here to do that, you know, throw a spot at the map type deal. At the winter range, I'm going to look at 500 to 1,000 feet above the winter range um, into the foothills or slow, just below the transition range. Okay. And then if you're going to get like super tactical nitpicky, are you walking, I assume you're not walking the bottoms of the draws if you can help it. Like, do you like to be halfway up the slope on the top? You know, I like, personally, I like to be a little higher than lower so I can see more um, ground. I can, it's easier to look down on a shed than up at a shed to me. Is that kind of mm-hmm. justified out west as well? Not just the rolling hills of South Dakota, but. No, 100%. Um, and usually when you're walking drainages or hopping ridges, I won't go over a ridge and go down to the bottom and go up the ridge. I like to hike in an M shape. Okay. So I'll hike just off the, off the spine of the ridge down into the drainage that I'm looking at or the basin. And I'll hike up toward the feeder finger of that ridge. I'll, I'll glass the other side. I'll glass the bottom. And then I'll hike back down the ridge I just hiked on, but down toward the bottom where I can see into the bottom a lot better. And then I'll hike, I'll cross the bottom, and then I'll hike up, you know, in an M shape. And I'll hike up the other side of the ridge closer to the bottom, back up to the top. And then I'll come on the top of that other ridge and glass everything I just hiked over on that side. So it's kind of a grid, but it's a wider set grid. And I'll, I'll usually do M's through all the fingers that I'm, that I'm planning on hitting instead of just going up and over. So if I um, and let your eyes be walking, if I get it, if I'm picturing what you're saying, you're, it sounds like you're basically staying, I'm staying at a constant elevation and I'm going like in and out, in and out. Or are you saying I'm actually going down and up in an M? No. So if you're, let's see here, if you've got, try to find a range, I actually got, I actually got on X pulled up here. I think that I think that make, like you're kind of more so staying at a certain elevation and trying to keep your elevation and move fast. Is that what? Right. So, like you're yeah, going so out and around got, a finger, not up and over. Right. So I don't know if you can see this real well. If you can't, we'll just nix the whole thing. I've got. Can you like go down to the left a little bit where the GPS coordinates are for everyone? Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Get right on that for you. Yeah. Uh, no, so you can see how this bowl is shaped how it's shaped you've got the basins coming in here you've got all your south facing slopes on these here yeah so i'm gonna hike up the spine and i'm gonna come down toward the bottom and then i'm gonna cross the bottom go up closer to the bottom and then i'm gonna hike this spine and glass everything back this way so i'm gonna cover that basin in a pretty good m and i'm just gonna do that basically the whole way around this whole basin until i either determine that you know i'm in an area where i'm not seeing sign or i'm in an area where it's been picked over completely or I'm fine in sheds. It'll all depend on that. But I'll hit a base in that way so that I don't, I don't leave any question or stone unturned. Yeah. Um, but, and it, it's worked out well for me. I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm no Eric Chesser. I'm no, you know, big name uh, shed hunter, but I, I find a lot of sheds and I'm proud of it. But it's, that's, that's my method, man. That's kind of my, my go-to method. And I glass a lot. I hike slow. Yeah. Are you doing just bipod? Or sorry, uh, binoculars. Or are you doing tripod spotter? Depends on the on the area I'm going. If I if I have if I know I'm going somewhere where there's not a lot of tree pockets and stuff like that or, or blockages, I will take my spotter up with me, and uh, I'll glass from points. But I have my most success uh, just by binos and 
sitting down on the hillside and putting my putting a hiking stick down on the binos and just sitting there and glassing the other side and just picking yeah. it apart. That's what we do too. Um, and then and just it's easier to go in like that. Move fast until you find something worth slowing down for. Yeah. 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 So yep. I think that'll help a lot of people like piece it together. Cause I think everyone should go. I think everyone should go out West and just enjoy the West. And there's a great time to do it. It's in the spring. Nothing else is going on. You're not going to miss your whitetail rut. You're not going to miss duck opener. Um, it, you might miss some turkey hunting, but I still think people are wild for even being interested in turkeys anyway. So <laughs> I, I'm the same way, man. I've never, ever, ever had any interest. It's wild. I, I need know. to, I need to do it. I'm, I'm terrible at it. I need to do it. Probably do it with someone that loves it and is good at it and see what they see and then make up my mind, but I've never shot one. So I think it's stupid. <laughs> well, I, I look at us as elk hunters too. I look how we act, you know, when we're trying to call in bulls or raking a tree or yeah. You know, we're bugling, we're cow calling, we're, you know, and I look at how turkey callers t- call turkeys and I, it looks like they're having a seizure, man. They're, they're taking their hat off. They're shaking it for like feather. Uh, it's nuts. I, I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I'd ever be able to, to get on board, on board with that. There's style. a lot of people but that say turkey hunting is the poor man's elk hunting. That's what I hear. Yeah. Cause you're calling, you're it's doing tough, the same I thing, it's a tough gig. interacting with them, but, but yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't get it, but, um, but there is, uh, there is one other topic I wanted to talk to you about. I was cruising your social media and I see that you've been doing your own freeze dried meals. Yes. Yeah. And uh, as of recent, I've always had an interest. Yeah. So, you know, I think everyone goes through this in the same pattern. We're going to go out West. Well, what do we eat out West? So they Google it and mountain house comes up and they're like, Oh, Okay. We get a jet boil. All you got to do is boil water. You pour it in the mountain house bag. Boom, you're done. So you buy some mountain house. You try it out at home, and you're like, oh, man, these are pretty good. All right, cool. They taste way better than I thought they would for freeze-dried meals. So you go out Mm -hmm. west. You eat them for like four days in a row, and on day five, you feel like your stomach is missing, like someone ripped it out. (laughs) And you're like, what the heck? What's going on? And you wonder, and you do it again next year, same thing happens, and all of a sudden you start looking it up, and it's like, oh, yeah, Mountain House has a whole bunch of stuff in it that is not really good for you. And if you're living on Mountain House for any extent of period of time, you're going to start feeling it. Right. And so then people are like, well, what do you do? And then I've heard, like, Aaron Snyder talk about it. I've heard about, like, Gastronome and these other brands that are doing, like, healthy, clean freeze-dried meals. But a lot of people say, just do it yourself. It's not that hard. And I'm like, how do you do it yourself? And then I saw you, your video. And tell us a little bit, like, why did you get into it? And then, like, what do you need to get into it? So, I I mean, all the years of eating Mountain House, and, you know, there's a lot of great companies out there. And I won't say anything bad about the companies. But, yeah, like, I mean, to your experience, everybody has that same experience. I mean, we all relate, you know, the stomach issues, the the feel like just dragging, you don't have the energy that you feel like you should, um, even though you're burning a crap ton of calories, you should be refueled by those meals. But for whatever reason, you just feel heavy. So I got tired of feeling that way. I like to do 10 to 15 mile days. And when I don't feel like I can do that, I start looking at my fuel source and my fuel source obviously is my food. So I got to thinking, man, it'd be really nice to figure out this freeze dried way of life or whatever. And to take the things that I harvest from the mountain, the healthiest meats on the planet with, you know, my own way of cooking and preparing those meals because my family loves it. I love it. It's all we eat. We don't buy beef. 
So why am I eating it up here? I mean, I should have the best fuel with me up here. So I was like, I, I tried to figure out and did some research and it was pretty easy to find, you know, ways to do it. Um, and I went with the easiest way that I could start as quick as I could. And I just, I grabbed, I think it's called Harvest Right. It's an actual freeze drying machine. Um, they've been around for a few years. I've been watching them and seeing if they can come down on price. So they are costly um, out of the get go. So you're looking at like probably 2,800 bucks to start with the machine itself, which I know is steep. And I know it seems like that's so stupid, but I did a cost analysis on it with me and my family. My family was eating, you know, freeze dried meals. We camp, we backpack a lot in the summer. Um, not to mention what I use myself in my hunts during my hunting seasons or camping myself. So um, we, we went through 130 bags of like mountain house or peak or gastronome or uh, Heather's choice, what have you, any, any brandy, all of them. And the cost of that, you know, you look at that at between 11 and 15 bucks a bag. Mm-hmm. One year of going through those bags will pay for itself, not to mention the price of everything right now. Um, Food-wise, uh, having a little, you know, storage pantry full of food that's going to last you a long time doesn't make the worst, you know, approach at being self-sustainable either. So I pulled the trigger on it. And I've, yeah, I, I've started like I think it was three or four months ago, two months, three months ago recently after I got the machine and I have, I th- the thing has not turned off. I mean, it's off now, but it'll be on this afternoon again. So it's, it's awesome. I've made all my favorite meals and I've got, I, I'm able to take my meal up with me now. I, I elk scrambles. So I've got my breakfast, green chili elk scrambles and elk pasta with penne and all that stuff is just the food that I've put in it. I know exactly where it came from. And it's a really nice peace of mind to have on the mountain. So when you're doing it from what I saw, you cook the food almost like you would normally, but you just don't mix the ingredients together, put them in trays. The, it, it looked to me like a vertical smoker, like a little, or not a vertical smoker, a dehydrator, like a little countertop. You put the trays in, shut the door, it freeze dries. Now, do you have to put anything in it besides what you would normally cook with to make it work? Like no preservatives, no chemicals, nothing. Nothing. That's what's best. That's the best part about it. And uh, dehydrator, you're going to lose like 40 to 60% of the nutrients in the food. And I was doing research on that too. And uh, freeze dryer, you lose about 3%. So you've got 97% of the flavor of the nutrients that go into the food when you're cooking it and combining it. And you've got that with you in the package. So um, if you're saying, if you're making an elk scramble, a green chili, I'll freeze dry the green chili separate every single ingredients separate except for like seasonings and what have you to cook but and then i'll add it in portions so that it's all separated but together it it rehydrates and reconstitutes a lot better that way in my experience and if you freeze dry elk or any meat for that matter if you freeze dry it medium rare it will reconstitute medium rare and it's the coolest thing it's just it tastes so much better than anything i've ever bought from the store and i don't mean that in a bad way from those companies because they help a lot of people get on the mountain and eat, but it's, I'm, I'm so glad we made the decision to, to grab one of those machines. Yeah. It sounds amazing. Is there anything you can't put in it or doesn't work well? Uh, like peanut butter, butter, anything that has like a, a heavy fat content does not do well. Um, you can do, you can even do cheese. Cheese does great. And even though it does have a high fat content, but like you were, if you were to put like a liquid fat in there, it just doesn't, it doesn't do well. Something really oily, like a pesto doesn't do very well. It will freeze dry, but it won't keep that long. So if you look at some of your, like your peak refuels, there's a chicken pesto pasta they have. Um, I think it only lasts like two or three years. 
so it's not shelf it's shelf stable as like a mountain house that'll last you till the year 2055 mm-hmm. but um it's definitely more flavorful so if you're planning on using it in a couple of years and not buying it for like a survival preparation type thing they work just fine but um, they still have all the things that you don't really know about in them and i like to avoid that okay yeah how long did the meals last that you make at home and because you were putting like a desiccant pack in it right just to keep the moisture out yep yep the oxygen absorbers act in a way so like when you when you put your meal in you throw an oxygen absorber in and you you seal it as best you can with as much air as you can out of it and then you heat seal it which super seals it and then eventually over the course of like three or four days those oxygen absorbers ultimately ends up um, it kind of self vacuum seals. It's kind of wild because I don't vacuum seal them, but it feels like it's vacuum sealed. So I know they're going to stay for a long time. Um, the first meal I did was, like I said, a couple, two or three months ago. And uh, I mean, it's like, it's, it's a tight package of food. So I know it's going to last. Um, and that's the process is literally what the big companies do. It's just not on a commercial scale. So you're, you're putting together food that's going to last you for a long time. And I've tried the meals and, that I've made just because you have to obviously to see if it's all worth its while. And I've never been happier with a, that kind of a purchase before than I am with like the freeze dryer. Do you it's think definitely worth it? Do you think that your meals will last like the 40 years that mountain house will last? No, I don't. Um, I think the last 10 to 15 years is what I, everything I've been seeing. Um, the do it your own, the do it yourself stuff, all natural uh, without the preservatives and stuff that kick it over that edge of like 40 year preservation. Uh, we don't have that and I don't want that in my food anyways. So 10 to 15 years for me is, is pretty good. I think that's more than what you need. I mean, in 10 or 15 years, if things go bad, at least you have however many meals you've been making over the last 10 or 15 years, which should be substantial. Yeah. I'm I'm not really, I mean, if, if there's a need for food to be prepped 10 or 15 years and like we can't replace food for 15 years, we're got a lot of other issues, man. Even the people that have the right. forty cases of Mountain House, they will be the first ones to get robbed, or like the, there'll be such chaos in right. the streets. Like, I don't need that. That I'm needed for elk hunting, and like I would do the same as you. Cost analysis, it makes sense. We're gonna use it this much, but that's yeah, that's that's what kind of made me interested in it because, you know, I think Mountain House is great once, mm-hmm. maybe twice here and there. You know, um. We still bring it out every elk hunt. We just don't eat it four days in a row twice a day anymore because it, it messes right. you up. Like, we get archery elk hunting, you know, we're planning 60, 50, 60, 70 degree days depending on where you go. But every now and then, you know, we had a blizzard, 18 degrees in Montana with two feet of snow. It's like Mountain House sounded a lot better for lunch that day on the mountain than a cold sandwich. And so oh, yeah. you throw in it. It's fine. You're not, no issues whatsoever. You'll be fine. But when you spend as many days as it sounds like you do or some of the people do, or even just like a week straight eating two or three a day to get your calories in, you're going to start to feel it. If you've ever been to Taco Bell for lunch and dinner in the same day, you know what we're talking about. Exactly. Exactly. So. Yep. That's nice to be off of that. Um, actually, I've got a couple meals sitting right here. So you kind of see that's what they look like, um, the bags. This is the chicken Alfredo pane that I made. Um, it looks almost vacuum sealed. That's not vacuum sealed. It's just sealed with an oxygen absorber in it. And okay. I made that on 3-2-2023. So. Nice. Dude, that's exciting. 
That is exciting. Yeah. Um, and then you're also doing the antler restoration, right? Yes. Yep. So you just um, it seems like you're kind of like the jack of all trades, but did you? What was the <laughs> start? Master of, of <laughs> what was the start of that? Did you find like a giant chalker and you just like, man, what would this look like, fresh or brown? Yes, yeah, so I used to actually. So when I was a kid, I would paint them. I would, I would paint them brown um, with brown paint and a paintbrush, and I, I would always. I just always wanted to find them fresh or I always wanted to make them look like they were off the head. So I, I started doing it a long, long time ago, but um, I don't do that anymore. Obviously I uh, tried to find ways to make the, yeah, the bigger chalks it's like, man, that would be so cool if, if I could take that out of my keeper pile and like display it, or it would look better in my keeper pile um, without these three times missing or, you know, just Brown. Uh, so yeah, I just started uh, dabbling in ways to get rid of the chalk scale Um I've wasted a lot of antlers trying to, you know, get my method down. Right. Uh, but eventually, you know, I found, I found my way of doing it, which is a natural way involves no stain, just a sealant. And uh, yeah, I've been kind of doing it ever since a lot of buddies. Um, I've been fortunate. A lot of buddies trust me with their, with their memories to bring them back to life. Um, I've had a couple guys that have had giants hanging on sheds or uh, cabins that just, you know, they're like, man, this sucks that that bull is sitting up there just gathering, gathering snow and dropping chalk flakes. So they'd take it off the cabin, give it to me, and I'd bring it back to them. And now it's in their house. And I like to, I like to think, like I think I said on my post, that it's kind of a cool thing to be a part of someone's memory when the conversation comes up over drinks or whatnot. Or someone says, like, what? That's a great bull. Like, tell me the story about that. And then they tell the story. And it, I may not come up, but, you know, I'm a part of the memory. And part of the reason they're having that conversation, it's cool to me, you know, to pre preserve those memories for people and for myself. So is that something that you offer that service to like anybody like on a website or is it kind of just, you got to know me and be close. Cause who's going to put an antler through the USPS overnight? <laughs> well, that's kind of what it's developed into. Um, I probably will actually open up a, um, an actual site uh, that does it right now. I do it under my, cause I own a lawn care company, which is ACE like outdoor solutions. And I built it that way so that one day I can maybe push this into that as an umbrella or as a subsidiary of, of that umbrella corporation. So, um, I do it right now under my, my lawn care and outdoor company. Uh, so it's mostly people that are close to me or that know me. Um, and I've got, you know, plenty of, plenty of business and stuff like that to keep busy, but I'm trying, I'm kind of trying to transition out of out of doing the snow removal with my business and stuff like that. So I want to do more of the antler work. And over the last year, I've really been doing a lot, a lot more, uh, a lot more of it. And it's, uh, it's been cool to see the stuff that people send me. Um, Cause people are starting to send me things. There's a fellow that sent this weirdo. It's just a, a club of a bull with a really weird pedicle. So I'm going to end up, you know, bringing that back to life for him. And I've, done a few of the bigger things from that people drop off to me. So it's starting to, it's starting to grow into that where people are traveling to drop things off to me. So I feel like I'm doing something right. Um, and I'd love for that to be more of more of a revenue source for me because it's something I enjoy doing like so much. Does the, are you able to recapture some of the weight that's lost? Uh, it depends on how far gone the, the chalk is. That's, that's the problem. Um, putting weight back into an antler is really, really tough to do. The best thing I can do is uh, make sure that the cracks are not visible or not apparent um, and make sure that the color looks natural. So that's kind of where my, 
I would even call it expertise, my tactics lie, uh, to get that antler looking like it fell off the head or as close to it as I can possibly do it, even when it's chalked or broken tines. So if it's got broken tines, I can definitely repair the tines and you can gather some weight back to it that way. And with some of the methods that I use to fill the cracks, but you're not going to get much weight back out of it. So when you pick it up, it's probably going to still feel like a chalk. Hard whites though, they feel like a brown. And I always tell people when they drop it off, I'm like, do not try to sell this. Do not burn a bridge with your antler buyer if this is what you're trying to do. And I try to give them a warning and stuff like that to absolve myself of any of that liability because certainly I don't want to, I don't want to be sending people off to their antler buyer with false horns. It's just bad. It's really bad business. Yeah, you almost have to have like a a brand that you stamp into like the pedicle. Like this one was revived. <laughs> um, yeah, the whole antler buyer thing is wild to me because that's not a big thing up here in Minnesota because shed hunting isn't that like there's pockets of people that love it and go wild and maybe they sell some. But it takes a long time to to pile up enough whitetail sheds to make it kind of worth selling your memories and selling your effort versus like sure like you could probably match my cell pile and whitetails with two elk sheds and those aren't even like yep. stand like those aren't even in your keeper pile anyway like you're not giving up much right. you know for me it's like my whole season here's a hundred dollars it's like thanks <laughs> yeah it's. I think it hit 20 bucks a pound last year and it's still holding at 20 bucks a pound. So um, we found a 13 and a half pound Brown the other day. And it, I mean, you look at the cost right there, it's ridiculous. And then I See, also that's the problem. I would never sell a 13 and a half pound Brown. Cause I don't, can you see that picture? You can see the tops. That's my North Dakota bowl. Let me see. I gotta look around here. Oh, you can't see much. I, yeah. I gotta see it. Yep. There he is. Yeah. So yep. his are 11 pounds and he's a 354 inch bull. And so it's like, I wouldn't like the, the problem for me would be the, the antlers that are worth the money are the last ones I would ever sell. Right. That's, <laughs> that's why you have to build that keeper pile to a, it's like epic proportions. That way you can, you can part with some of them, but it's weird. I, you know, I, I remember every, like exactly where I picked up every single antler. That's what, that's what blows my mind, but I can't remember what I had for breakfast some days. So yeah. Well, that's super cool. Is there a, so for anyone that's like not feasibly close to you to drop off an antler to get restored, do you sell any type of like kit with a YouTube, like a code to watch a video and like buy the kit and do it at home yourself the best you can? Or does it just try to make a trip to Wyoming next time you go on a family vacation, I'll meet you in Gillette or something? Yeah, so far that's what it's been. Um, I actually thought about working up a how-to kind of a one-on-one um, that I could, you know, somehow monetize. But then I almost feel bad monetizing the task because I don't want to, you know, sell a task for somebody else to monetize. I feel like it's one of those art forms um, that you develop. And I don't want people thinking that I've got it down. I'm going to sell this down because that's, that's not why I do it. You know what I mean? It would be great. I could probably make a pretty decent amount of money for it, but I don't want to, I guess I don't want to take the wholesomeness out of what I do, I guess. Um, if that seems any sort of, if that makes any sort of sense. And I'm also not trying to be selfish with the method either. Cause I know there's a lot of people out there that want to do it. And I'm, I've helped quite a few people just over the phone, just without any, you know, who cares? Just, and I've shared, you know, some of the tactics on my TikTok and stuff like that. There's some how to's out there that I've done. Um, but it'd be kind of, yeah, I, I have thought about monetizing the, the strategy that I use, but. 
Um, I don't know if I'll go that route. I'm not sure. Well, if there's missing out, but. if there was things that were like specific that you can't just go to Menards and buy, that would be kind of nice yeah. to go to one person and like, here's the exact color you need for a Montana brown, and it's a little different than an Arizona brown. And here's the exact yep. compounds and the tool that works flawlessly, and you just button it up, fifty bucks. Here you go. So you know, I can do one or two antlers, and then I buy another kit. You know, the, you know something like that. Because I've done that with like Bridger Boiler, buy their skull yep. whitening stuff. Because it's like I don't really care to buy a two gallon jug of whatever that shit is from the hardware store. I just want enough to do my one skull. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah, there are some specialized things that I use. Um, a lot of it is available like a taxidermy shop. So you can get it in pretty small quantities. Like some of the, some of the re-sculpting stuff that I, that I use is straight up out of the taxidermy shops, you know, antler sculpt or uh, you can use fix it sculpt too. I'll share that. If you're, if you're, if you're doing tines, um, you're repairing tines, there's a method to it, obviously, but the stuff that I use, I use fix it sculpt um, and you can get it on Amazon for like 30 or 40 bucks for, you know, a small, a small tub of it and it I use that because it gives me a better base color. It's it dries a little bit closer to the to a like an off white antler than the uh the antler sculpt does. The antler sculpt dries like gray and you really have to work hard to get that color to a base where you can actually add a natural color to it. So um that's one thing I'll share is the the compound that I use for antler tine repair is fix it sculpt and it works phenomenal. Awesome. Well, if it's anything beyond that, just give Sean a DM or a shout and figure out a way to get to Montana. Yeah, shoot me a message. I'm happy to help, man. I'm not going to lie. So, awesome. Well, we just did an hour 15, man. It felt like it flew by. Oh, geez. Yeah, I did not feel like that. That's awesome. Yeah. So, dude, I appreciate your time. And uh, it was a great chat. We're going to have to do it again. We're going to have to get back um, this fall, catch up with you after the season, maybe try to find some way to meet up somewhere in Wyoming and try to find an antler together. But dude, this has been a great episode. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. I've had a blast. I'll, it's always fun to talk about this stuff with people that want to talk about it. Cause my wife's tired of talking about it or hearing me talk about it. So it's, it's good stuff. Thanks for having me. Dude. I think my <laughs> wife is so happy that I started a podcast so I can get my fix for talking about hunting, especially in the off season with other people. I've not heard. So there you go. Um, she That's can just only, a way to dump it on somebody else and not she, her. <laughs> she can only handle so much of it at a time, so it works out perfect. But uh, give people a chance God to follow along hunting, with you. Um, where where can people follow okay. you? Where can people connect? Um, at Real Sean Curtis. Uh, and again, that's the, such a stupid name. I use that because I used to sing country music and tour and sing and all that stuff. But I got off the road to hunt more and be with my family. So that's my name is still the Real Sean Curtis on Instagram. Um, and TikTok is just real Sean Curtis. And we've got a way better following on, on the old TikTok there. I think we're at like right around 175 or 180,000. And uh, it's a really cool community that I feel like I've helped build over there with a bunch of, a bunch of just regular hunters like myself and shed hunters that we, um, you know, we talk in the comments and stuff like that. And I do a bunch of lives over there and stuff like that, which um, would be fun for people to catch and connect with because I do some antler stuff on the lives as well. Cool. Well, thanks for sharing. Check them out, folks. Follow along. Learn a thing or two about shed hunting, restoring sheds, cooking your own freeze-dried meals, being just a more well-rounded outdoorsman. I appreciate that, man. Thanks. Thanks Thanks for for having me. Thanks for listening, folks.